0: hey welcome to the all-new tyson show i'm tyson whiting here on july 6th 2021 and certainly a new adventure here as is we're going to start a podcast two or three times a week and really it's more maybe more a sports talk radio show than a podcast necessarily but uh, hey perhaps it may sound a little bit better than what you hear on the radio on a given daily basis so we're gonna have a lot of fun today talking some nba finals the nhl i'm here in the utah grizzlies office so obviously hockey's part of our daily conversation we'll talk a little bit about the NHL finals as well and some fun stuff that happened over the weekend including the Joey Chestnut hot dog eating contest I mean pretty much you know they pretty much must just call it the the Joey the Joey Chestnut exhibition after all he had 76 hot dogs breaking his own record in fact he has the record and he's also all across the top 10 in the hot dog eating contest and the matches today between Phil Mickelson and Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady taking on Aaron Rodgers and Bryce and DeChambeau. And you got to see Brett Phillips pitch that happened this last weekend. And that was certainly something that uh, is must-see TV. But we'll begin with the NBA Finals as, after all, the Suns and Bucks are taking play. you know, they're in the NBA Finals. And it's the first NBA Finals since 2006 that did not have either LeBron James, Steph Curry, or the late Kobe Bryant in it. So you're talking about uh, finals where I don't think anybody really knows what to expect. I mean, after all, it's a little bit refreshing to see different teams in the NBA Finals this season. You talk about the Suns not making the NBA Finals since 1993. That's the last time the Suns were in the NBA Finals and they lost to the Chicago Bulls in six games. Charles Barkley was the MVP that year, but the Finals were dominated by Michael Jordan and obviously the game-winning shot by John Paxson in Game 6 to give the Bulls the series victory. And so it's been a long time for the Phoenix Suns. It's also been a long time for the Milwaukee Bucks. After all, the Bucks have not made it to the Finals. Since 1974, when they were led by a guy named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So it's been a long time. And if you think about the Suns and Bucks, there is one key moment that they are connected to in history. That's the 1969 NBA draft. And that's right, the 69 NBA draft. There was one player in particular who was dominant in that draft. There was one player in particular who was going to be a franchise-changing player, and that was Luau Cinder. He was the top pick in the draft. Neil Walk was the number two pick in the draft. The Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks were battling for the number one overall pick. And at that at that time, the first pick in the draft was decided by a coin toss between the top two teams, or bottom two teams, if you will, record-wise. And Phoenix had the choice. You know, do you go heads or do you go tails? Well, Phoenix chose heads. And the coin came back tails. I mean, obviously, they've never heard of the phrase tails never fails. Milwaukee wins the coin toss, takes Lou Alcindor, who later on became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the rest is history. Kareem led the Bucks to the championship in 1971. Three years later, went back to the finals, lost in seven games to the Boston Celtics. And really, that's a series that's best remembered for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Hitting that 18-foot running baseline hook, the, the, the famous sky hook, over Hank Finkel to get, win Game Six and tie the series three games apiece, and then Boston went to Milwaukee for Game Seven and ended up winning the series. You know, Boston led by Dave Collins, and Collins, even though he was undersized, he was about six nine going up against the seven one, maybe seven foot two Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Collins really held his own in that series. Really, if you're talking about two images that define that series, one was the Kareem Sky Hook on the baseline to win Game Six, and the other highlight really was Dave Callens diving on the floor at, at the Boston Garden in Game 6. You know, Boston was one of those teams led by Tommy Heinzen and John Havlicek, you know, JoJo White, who was actually part of that 1969 draft, as JoJo White was the ninth overall pick. I mean, that was a great team. And when Kareem got traded to the Lakers, I think it was about 1977, maybe 78, you know, the franchise changed. And, you know, Milwaukee, even though they had some great players and they had some really good teams in the 1980s, I mean, you think about those teams led by Marcus Johnson and and Sidney Moncrief and Junior Bridgman. I mean, they were good teams, but they weren't the type of teams that had the type of players, and in particular, had that type of star that could lead them to a championship. And you know, Milwaukee had some good players, you know, Ray Allen, Glenn Robinson, you know, the Big Dog. You know, they've had some good players in the past, but they finally got themselves a superstar in the Greek Freak Giannis Antetokounmpo. Was the NBA MVP in 2019 and in 2020? So, you're talking about two time MVP, and yet game four against Atlanta, he goes down with an injury, or maybe it was game five. And um, so, you're talking about the Milwaukee Bucks team that really had to scratch and claw to win game six and clinch that series. I mean, you think about Milwaukee, had to get a big performance, you know, because Atlanta, you know, despite Trey Young being hurt himself. I mean, you're talking about a Milwaukee team that really needed key contributions from their role players to get to the finals. And you think about game six, the series clincher against Atlanta. Chris Middleton had 32 points. Drew Holiday had 27 points. You know, Burke Lopez was a plus 25 and had 13 points and six rebounds. I mean, those guys are going to have to come up big for Milwaukee if they want to win the series. And I think about Giannis maybe being the difference and Giannis's health probably being the biggest factor into who is going to win this series? I mean, really when you talk about who's the favorite in this series, I mean, I call, I almost look at it being an even series. The big difference though will be if Giannis is not 100%. That 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 yeah, that, that really swings the momentum to Phoenix's favor and makes Phoenix the favor the, the favorite. I mean, I look at the difference in the series being what happens between Giannis's health? I mean, because when you look at Giannis, is the type of guy that can make the difference in this series. And albeit you know his foul shooting's not all that great, but Giannis is the type of player that can carry a team. And you know I don't think it's any coincidence that the best player the Bucks had since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is Giannis Antetokounmpo. And obviously the Bucks went 47 years between finals appearances, and the big difference is having that sort of superstar that can carry a team. Now, if Giannis, who's doubtful for game one, and really, who knows what his availability is for the rest of this series, if he's unable to go, that's certainly going to be a big difference. If you're listening to the Tyson Show, we'll talk some hockey in about 20 minutes or so. But I'm looking at Giannis being the big difference in this series. Now, really, when you talk about, you know, who's going to win this series, I mean, you kind of have to look back to the two season meetings between these clubs. They met on February 10th. As Milwaukee took on Phoenix in Phoenix, and that was a classic. Phoenix ended up winning 125 to 124. Giannis had 47 points and 11 rebounds that night, and the big thing was he was 17 of 21 from the foul line that evening. Phoenix doesn't have a guy that can slow him down. You know, maybe DeAndre, maybe uh, Aiton can stop him. You know, DeAndre Aiton, maybe he could slow him down a little bit. You know, maybe a change of coverages. Maybe you have Bridges cover him for a little bit. Maybe Jay Crowder, even though Crowder's given up a ton of size against him. You know, you're talking about a difference maker in Giannis Antetokounmpo, the two-time MVP. If he's unable to go, that's going to be a big difference in this series. Because can Chris Middleton carry him? Can Drew, can Drew Holiday carry him? I mean, they, pop, they probably could. I mean, Drew Holiday did not play in that matchup in February. Phoenix ended up winning 125-124. I mean, Giannis had 47 points, but you look at the Phoenix side – yeah, Devin Booker had 30 points. Chris Paul had 28 points. You know, the backcourt. Whoever wins that backcourt matchup, Chris Paul, Devin Booker uh, on the Phoenix side, or from Milwaukee, you're talking about Drew Holiday. You know, maybe Pat Connaughton, Bryn Forbes. You know, you throw Chris Middleton into the mix there. I mean, whoever wins that backcourt matchup. He's going to win this series. I don't think there's any question about it. Chris Middleton. You're probably going to see him a lot, maybe on Devin Booker, even though I think they're going to change coverages on him. But you're talking about that matchup in February. That was a classic, 125-124. And you think about their most recent meeting, April 19th. The Suns ended up winning 128-127 to in overtime. And in that game, though, Giannis had 33 points, 8 rebounds. He was 9-10 of from the foul line and uh, shot 12-22 of from the field. So you're talking about in the two matchups between these teams, close games. Phoenix ended up winning by one point in each of the games, and Giannis had a combined eighty points. He had forty-seven points in February, thirty-three points on April nineteenth. You know, Chris Middleton had a pretty good game both nights. You know, he had eighteen points on seven of seventeen shooting on February tenth, and on April nineteenth, Chris Middleton. A 10 of 22 from the field. You know, if Giannis is not 100%, Chris Middleton's going to have to be the key player for Milwaukee. He's going to have to score 30 points, and he's going to have to do a good job on the defensive end as well. Because in Giannis Antetokounmpo, not only are you losing your best offensive weapon, you're probably losing your best defensive weapon as well. So that's going to be the big difference in this series. And I kind of look at Drew Holiday, who did not play in the matchup in February, but on April 19th, Holiday had 25 points for Milwaukee. And those were the two guys that came through from Milwaukee when they needed him the most. And I know a lot of fan bases are going to be using injuries as an excuse as to why their team didn't win. You look at Milwaukee without Giannis, I mean, their, their guys ended up coming through. You know, Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday in particular. And if you're talking about a great defensive guard. I mean, you're talking about Drew Holiday, and he's going to have to come up big against Chris Paul. And if you're thinking about the big storylines, I'm obviously thinking about Giannis as being the big storyline and his health being the big factor. But I also look at a guy like Chris Paul and Devin Booker. I think Chris Paul... And the story that he is, and the difference really that he has made to this Phoenix Suns team being the big difference as we're talking NBA playoffs here on The Tyson Show. Uh, You know, Chris Paul making the NBA finals for the first time, and Phoenix making the NBA finals for the first time since 1993. You know, that's certainly a big story. And a Phoenix Suns team that did not, before this season, hadn't made the playoffs since 2010. You know, 2010, you know, the Phoenix starting five that year in 2010, 11 years ago, had a backcourt of Steve Nash and Jason Richardson. The forwards were Grant Hill, Channing Frye, and Amari Stoudemire. And if you think about how long ago it was, 2010, Chris Paul is the only player on the current Suns roster who was in the league in 2010. And I think Chris Paul making the finals is a great story. I mean, after all, He's a guy that you you know, despite this being his 16th year in the NBA, he's still got a lot of game. You know, you're talking about a guy in Game Six against the Clippers had 41 points and he had no turnovers. In fact, he is only the fourth player to have 40 points or more and no turnovers in a Conference Finals game since turnovers became an official stat in 1978, joining only Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, and Hakeem Olajuwon. once. you're talking about great company there in three all-time greats. And you certainly have to put Chris Paul in the, in that all time great category. I don't know exactly where you put him, especially among point guards. You know, put him right with Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton. I mean, who knows? It really is up to debate as to where you put Chris Paul in the the all time point guard category. But nevertheless, you're talking about a guy that uh, you know not only makes a great for a great commercial, but Chris Paul. You know, one of the all time greats. And it's interesting seeing him in the NBA Finals for the first time. In fact, he's playing his first NBA Finals game in his 1,214th game of his career. That's only the second latest into a career for a player's first ever Finals game. Uh, the one that holds, holds the record is Kevin Willis, who played in 1,429 games before reaching the NBA Finals. And I think that, you know, if we're talking about big storylines and what's going to make the difference in this series, You know, I'm looking at Devin Booker as certainly being a big factor. And I think coming into this year, everybody talked about Devin Booker as somebody that, okay, great, gets a lot of stats. You know, he had that 70 point game against Boston a few years ago. You know, he was the guy that was really carrying the Phoenix offense. But the big thing is they weren't winning. You know, they were a losing team. And I don't know what happened in the bubble. There must be a great documentary, not only about the bubble experience in the NBA, but what happened to the Phoenix Suns that really turned the fortune of that franchise around. Because Phoenix really looked like they were in a bad state uh, going into the bubble. They looked like a team that you know, just uh, had been in rebuild for quite a while. And even though they had a great player in Devin Booker, it felt like they were a long ways away. But then they go to the bubble and all of a sudden they look like a different team. They, they look like a championship quality team. You know, They get to the bubble and all of a sudden the Phoenix Suns, for whatever reason, grew up as a franchise. And I don't know if it's just Devin Booker figuring out what it takes to win on both ends of the court. But Phoenix looked like a different team. And then they pick up Chris Paul in the offseason to go along with Devin Booker, to go along with the 2018 number one overall pick, DeAndre Ayton. You know, you get a couple good pieces in Mikael Bridges. You know, you get a good role player in Jay Crowder. And before you know it, not only you got a team that's going to compete in the Western Conference, but you got a team that won the Western Conference. And Devin Booker certainly played a big, big role in it. I mean, you don't hear the Devin Booker haters anymore. When you think about a guy that in the postseason this year, averaging 27 points a game, six and a half rebounds, just about five assists. And the big thing, you know, Devin Booker, even though he turns the ball over a lot, I mean, in the postseason, he's averaging about four turnovers a game. You are getting somebody that has proven some mental toughness, you know, breaking his nose in game two. You know, Devin Devin Booker has shown himself to be in a guy that uh, can perform come playoff time. And we saw it time and time again in that Clippers series where – he could just find a way to get to get enough room to get a shot off, time in and time out. You know, when he entered the the, the NBA, you know, he's probably more just a, a jump shooter. You know, stand behind the three point line and hit a corner three here and there. You know, Devin Booker really transformed his game from just an offensive player that stands behind the three point line, and that seemed like about two or three years into his career, he started improving his ball handling. And then as his game developed, you know, you could see him kind of moving without the ball better. You know, once he had the ball, making those moves and, you know, the kind of the subtle moves. Uh, you know, really the big thing is Devin Booker. I mean, they talk about analytics and how unimportant the mid-range game is. But Devin Booker really has shown a lot of promise in the mid-range game as well. And uh, so if Phoenix is going to win the finals. I'm looking at that backcourt combination. Chris Paul and Devin Booker uh, to end up being the big factor, being the big difference maker in this series. Not that different from where Steph Curry and Clay Thompson were a few years ago in the Golden State Warriors dynasty, whereas Steph Curry and Clay Thompson just kind of dominated the action offensively, you know, between them probably scoring about fifty or fifty five points a game. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at Chris Paul and Devin Booker. If they're gonna win this series, I mean, Booker and Paul are probably gonna have to combine for forty five to fifty points, maybe. Devin Booker in the postseason is averaging about 27 points himself. Chris Paul averaging 18. You know, Phoenix is going to win this series. Those guys are going to have to come up big. And after all, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are both all-stars this season, and they are the third different all-star starting backcourt to make the finals in the last 35 years, joining Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, and in 1990. Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars were all-stars that year, and they also were in the NBA Finals defeating Portland in five games. And That stat would have also applied to the Jazz had they reached the Finals as Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell are both all-stars this season. But I'm looking at the backcourt matchup. You know, Chris Paul, Devin Booker against Drew Holiday, and Chris Middleton, who wins that matchup, is going to end up winning this series. I'm, I'm certainly fascinated, and I'm really excited to see new blood in the NBA Finals. I'm excited to see you know Phoenix and Chris Paul making his first Finals appearance. You know, Can Devin Booker really make that final descent into superstardom? I think he's already there, but you're talking about Devin Booker maybe joining Chris Paul in some of those State Farm commercials if Phoenix is able to come through in the NBA Finals. And really, the big story, as we were mentioning earlier, is going to be the health of Giannis Antetokounmpo because if he's not 100%, I think it's going to be really tough for Milwaukee to win this series. And I was kind of looking at the odds Going into this finals, and uh, I was looking at you know Phoenix being a favorite, but if Giannis were healthy, you know we talked about earlier the two regular season matchups, both games were decided by one point, and that was with a healthy Giannis, and uh, so you're talking about maybe the big difference being. It's an even series if if everybody's healthy on both sides. If Giannis or anybody's out, that could end up making the big factor. And you're talking about two-time MVP, doubtful for game one, and who really knows what his availability is for the rest of this series. I'm looking at Phoenix winning this series. I'm not going to be like that guy who fought the Denver Nuggets fan and then yelled Suns in four. I'm not thinking this is going to be a four-game sweep. But I do have the Phoenix Suns winning this series, and uh, I got it going six games. I got Phoenix in six in the nba finals and it's certainly a lot of fun here in the month of july you know normal years you got the nba finals in june you got the nhl finals in june and july is pretty much just kind of regular season baseball and waiting for football season to arrive you know with the nba and the nhl starting a little bit later this season and ending a little bit later this year it's kind of fun here in the month of july to be talking basketball and talking hockey and uh, certainly a lot of fun talking sports here in the month of July, and it's great to get the Tyson Show on track. You can air the Tyson Show here on Mixler two or three times a week. Next version, next edition of the Tyson Show will be on Friday, July 9th. You can air every show live on Mixler, and we're also going to be on SoundCloud as well, so you can listen uh, whenever you choose to listen. And uh, certainly we're going to have a, a lot of fun here the rest of the show. Joey Chestnut. I mean, what about Joey Chestnut that hasn't been mentioned? Ten straight hot dog eating championships. He's won six straight titles. And he's won 14 in his career. I mean, Joey Chestnut. What can you say? I mean, he had 76 hot dogs. I mean, I enjoyed two hot dogs during during July 4th. I enjoyed them well. Put some relish and mustard on the hot dogs. I'm not really a. I used to be somebody who put ketchup on his hot dog, but not in, not really anymore. You know, I kind of grew away from a ketchup on on the hot dog. But I do go mustard and relish. I mean, Joey Chestnut's just eaten 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. I mean, what's the numbers there? That's about a hot dog. Every eight or nine seconds. <laughs> You're talking about all-time records there. But there were some difficulties, uh, technical difficulties from ESPN's point of view, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in this show. When we come back, we'll talk some NHL finals as Josh Anderson saved the day for the Montreal Canadiens last night. And we'll also get into the MLB All-Star game, which is next week, certainly one of my favorite events In the month of July, obviously in a normal July, not one that's involving the NHL or NBA playoffs. But Shohei Ohtani is doing some things that haven't been done since the days of Babe Ruth. We'll compare Shohei Ohtani and Babe Ruth coming up next as we're in business on a Tuesday afternoon. And you're listening to The Tyson Show right here on Mixler and SoundCloud. Game 1 is tonight. I'm Tyson Whiting with your 2020 sports update. The Phoenix Suns host Game 1 of the 2021 NBA Finals against the Milwaukee Bucks tonight at 7 o'clock Mountain Time. Phoenix is favored by 5.5 for Game 1. The Suns are also favored to win the series, and a big reason for that is the injury to two-time NBA MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is doubtful for Game 1 and his availability for the rest of the series is also in question. The Greek Freak left Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals with an injury. Now these teams did meet twice in the regular season with Phoenix winning on February 10th, 125 to 124. and that game, Giannis had 47 points for the Bucks, and Devin Booker led Phoenix with 30. The Suns also won on April 19th in overtime, 128 to 127. So both of the games were decided by one point and both of them were Phoenix victories. If the finals is anything like the two regular season meetings, this is going to certainly be a classic series. Game one is on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. In hockey, the Montreal Canadiens saved their season with a 3-2 overtime win over the Tampa Bay Lightning in game four of the Stanley Cup finals. Josh Anderson scored two goals, including the game winner, 3:57 into the extra session as the Canadians win their first finals game since 1993 also happened to be the last time the Phoenix Suns were in the NBA Finals, so 1993 is certainly a big theme there. Tampa Bay still leads the series three games to one with Game 5 taking place on Wednesday night in Tampa. Today is the made-for-TV golf event on TNT with Aaron Rodgers and Bryson DeChambeau taking on Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady in Big Sky, Montana. At your 2020 sports update. I'm Tyson Whiting, and you can follow me on Twitter at Tyson on Sports, and I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Welcome back to the Tyson Show. I'm Tyson Whiting. We'll be here a couple times a week here on Mixler and SoundCloud. We're live on Mixler, and we'll be on SoundCloud as well after the show, just posting it online, and hopefully everybody's enjoying their post-July 4th holiday. I mean, that's what that's kind of the toughest thing going back to work after the July 4th holiday is you know, realizing that, oh, yeah, we're, we're going back to the work week. But it was a lot of fun getting Monday off. Hopefully everybody got at least Friday or Monday off or maybe a combination of the two. As we're here in the Utah Grizzlies' office, you know, and obviously part of the conversation here in the Grizzlies' office, I've called games for the Grizzlies over the last three seasons, and you know, obviously hockey turns into part of the conversation, and really you kind of go into the finals thinking that Tampa Bay was going to win in either four or five games, and Tampa Bay certainly dominated the first three games of the series, and when the score is tied two-two after Pat Maroon tied up the game late in the third period, I was thinking that maybe it was going to be Tampa Bay you know, sweeping the four-game series and then ending the NHL and NBC as we knew it, as, uh, you know, whenever the finals comes to a conclusion, NBC is going to give way to ESPN and the Turner family, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see what what happens with them covering the NHL. But, you know, Montreal came up big, and in particular, Josh Anderson came up big for the Montreal Canadiens. When you talk about guys who need to step up big for Montreal, it's guys like him. I mean, Carey Price is certainly carried that franchise for a long time but really the big thing you know is Montreal needing to score those those big goals because really we you talk about Tampa Bay I mean the interesting thing is if you're not looking at hockey specific shows I mean, the NHL finals have not gotten much attention at all you know unless you're watching a show that's specifically talking hockey you know you're not going through the radio dial and hearing m- many people talking about hockey and in particular talking about the Stanley Cup finals and I think that what hurts hockey maybe as much as it hurts other sports is the fact that, you know, in the NBA, you know, we went through an entire segment talking NBA. We were just talking about stars. Chris Paul, Devin Booker on the Suns' side, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton on the Milwaukee side. You know, sports really, and the way people watch sports, they watch stars. They don't necessarily watch teams. They watch stars. And the thing that's kind of tough about a sport like hockey, a, a sport that's that's total team, you know, is uh, you really you're basing you know stars. Uh, you know, you're watching stars and in hockey, you know stars can kind of get hidden in the flow of a, of a particular hockey game. You know, when the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup Finals, it wasn't the Capitals won the won the finals as much as Ovechkin winning the when the winning the cup. You know, when Pittsburgh won, it wasn't the Penguins as much as it was Crosby and and, and Malkin and Mark Andre Fleury and Matt Murray. You know, it was those guys. It wasn't necessarily. The Penguins, everybody's talking about. It was Crosby. I think what's kind of hurt the Stanley Cup finals is the fact that, you know, no offense to the Montreal Canadiens fans, but Montreal's in it. You know, a team from Canada is in the finals, but it's not the team that's got Connor McDavid and Leon Drysidle, nor is it the team in Toronto that's got Austin Matthews and John Tavares and Mitch Marner. I think that's what's hurt the NHL as much is that, you know, the stars, the big names, aren't in the Stanley Cup finals. You know, when I think the hockey people look at Tampa Bay and they look at Kucherov, and they look at Steven Stamkos. Those guys are stars in hockey fans' minds. Unfortunately, they don't cross over into people who just watch hockey every now and then, particularly because, you know, Tampa's not an original six. I mean, how many times before the playoffs did you see Tampa on national TV? And that was the team that won the finals last year. You know, Vasilevsky's about as good as any goaltender in hockey. But do you hear his name mentioned as much as, you know, some of the other goaltenders? Not necessarily. So, you know, it's one of those that, you know, Tampa's got the star power, but people just don't think of Kucherov and Stamkos and some of those guys as being the stars that they are. And Tampa's about to run this win the Stanley Cups for the second straight year, and yet when you talk, you look at ESPN.com, you look at CBSSports.com, you look at some of those other websites, hockey may be there. But is it prominent? Is it something everybody's talking about? we had a great overtime game and uh you know unfortunately had the tragedy with the blue jackets goaltender uh, passing away due to a fireworks accident yet on the front page of cbsports.com that's the only hockey story you see unless you have to scroll unless you scroll down how far do you have to scroll down on cbsports.com a long ways and we're talking about the stanley cup finals here you know espn who's going to have hockey next season you know where is the stanley cup finals on espn.com Unfortunately, we have the tragedy with the Blue Jackets goaltender. Do we have to scroll down to find uh, any stories about hockey? Yes, we do. We have to scroll a long way before we find the Stanley Cup Finals. So, unfortunately, uh, the Stanley Cup Finals have not resonated with the general public, the general sports fan. And uh, you know, maybe next season with ESPN picking it up, uh, you know, with TNT, you know, it'll be interesting to see what their coverage is gonna look like next year. Maybe they can raise the profile of hockey to where, you know the big names aren't just limited to Connor Mcdavid and and guys like that, you know, the top five guys, Ovechkin Crosby, you know, maybe Colorado with Nathan McKinnon can show up next season. Or maybe Tampa can have another title run. you know, maybe they can get a third title run, and then all of a sudden, maybe their stars can turn into household names. You know, Maybe people will talk about Nikita Kucherov in houses that aren't just meant for hardcore hockey fans who are watching 24-7. It'll be interesting to see what happens in Game 5. I mean, Montreal did a good job battling back to win Game, game 4 after Tampa scored that goal late in the third period, but uh, I still don't have any confidence that this series is going to go past five games. I think Tampa's going to take care of business on Wednesday night. And win their second straight Stanley Cup. As we're talking hockey, and we're talking all things sports here on the Tyson Show. On uh, right here on Mixler, and uh, hopefully someday we'll be back on the you know sports dot radio somewhere, uh, right there on the AM or FM dial. But uh, you know we're thinking about baseball a little bit as the All Star Game is next week. And really, I'm fascinated as everybody else is about Shohei Otani, who made the All Star team as a designated hitter. And as a pitcher. So you're talking about a guy who made the All Star team in two different spots. And Shohei, I mean, you know, you imagine everybody growing up. You know, your best athlete in high school, you know, the best baseball player at every high school probably pitches and hits. You know, probably can hit 80, 85 miles an hour on the radar gun. You know, probably has a pretty good bat. But, you know, it's really tough. I mean, hitting a baseball and hitting a 95 mile an hour fastball is probably the toughest thing to do in sports. And Shohei's not only doing it, but he's doing it at a rate where here on July 6th Shohei's got 31 home runs 67 RBIs he's got a 363 on base percentage you know he's hitting 277 and you know the guy's been unbelievable I mean Shohei's been one of the best hitters in baseball and uh, it's happened con- you know, consistently throughout the season I mean it's not like this guy, the guy's going in prolonged slumps you know Shohei's been unbelievable with the bat and think about it you know he had a terrible outing against the Yankees Last week where he went only a third of an, an, an inning, didn't get past the first inning. And yet you look this year in 12 games on the mound, 60 innings pitch, he's given up 41 hits. He struck out 83, struck out 83 guys in 60 innings. I mean, he's one of the best strikeout pitchers in the game today, walking 35, which is a little bit of a high total. But when you got his sort of stuff, I mean, he's gonna you got that electric fastball with a pretty good off-speed pitch as well. I mean, he's doing things that we haven't seen since Babe Ruth. And, you know, when you think about Babe Ruth, it's not his entire career where he was a hitter and a pitcher. You have to look at two specific years where where Ruth did both. It was 1918 and 1919. Before 1918, he was strictly a pitcher. And after 1920, when he was traded, where he was sold from the Red Sox to the Yankees, he became purely a hitter with the exception of pitching in one game in 1920, two games in 1921 and one game in both 1930 and 1933. I mean, he only pitched in five games with the New York Yankees. So you got to look at two years in particular where he did both. In 1918 at the plate, Babe Ruth led the league with 11 home runs. That's right, 11 home runs back in 1918 led the league. He did lead the league as a hitter in strikeouts. He struck out 58 times. But he had the best slugging percentage in the American League that year and at five fifty five and the best OPS at nine sixty six. On the mound in nineteen eighteen, you know, Ruth had a pretty good year. He went thirteen and seven with a two point two two earned run average, 166 innings. He gave up 125 hits. Wasn't really a strikeout pitcher. You know, Ruth maybe It would be interesting to see Babe Ruth pitch because you you kind of think of a big burly guy like that being someone who just threw fastballs past everybody. And even though he had a great innings pitch to hits ratio, he didn't necessarily strike out a ton of guys. I mean, Babe Ruth's best strikeout year was in 1916 when he struck out 170 guys in 323 innings. So even then, he's not striking out a whole lot of batters. I mean, he only struck out about half a batter per inning. Uh, back in his best strikeout year in 1916. So you're talking about a guy that, you know, even then, you know, he didn't really pitch full-time necessarily. I mean, he was averaging 40 starts a year, 1916 and 1917. uh, When he started becoming an outfielder a little bit, you know, and playing the outfield more and more, in 1918, he only played, he only pitched in 20 games. and In 1919, he only pitched in 17 games, had 15 starts. And even then, he was only nine and five with a two point nine seven earned run average at the plate. Though, is really where he made his mark back in nineteen nineteen. If you you want to draw the comparison between Shohei and Babe Ruth, nineteen nineteen is probably the year to do it, because in nineteen nineteen, he had twenty nine home runs and one hundred and thirteen RBIs. Both of those led the league. And then, uh, you know, he had an OPS of 1,114. You know, the guy was unbelievable at the plate. And once he got sold to the Yankees, they were more interested in his draw as a hitter than they were as a pitcher. And so so Ruth obviously became just about exclusively a hitter once he joined the Yankees. And so what Shohei Otani's doing... I think, in some respects, even better than what Babe Ruth is doing. I mean, after all, Babe Ruth was—that uh, was before you know—you saw integration and Jackie Robinson uh, coming into the big leagues, along with you know guys like Larry Doby. And so, Babe Ruth's only facing white guys, and he's only facing you know guys who are probably my size. You know, five eight. You know, I'd like to say I'm like one ninety five, but I'm probably you know, up there above the two twenty you know, range. I mean, you are talking about Ruth playing in an era where. You know, he's not facing the athletes that Otani's facing now. It's not like Otani's facing 97 as a hitter and then throwing hundred about, you know, about 100 miles an hour himself on the mound. I mean, Otani's doing things that Ruth I, wasn't doing. You know, Ruth was going both ways, but Otani's doing it at a better clip than what Babe Ruth is doing. You know, Ruth was a good pitcher, but, you know, having an ERA of about three in Ruth's era actually wasn't that great. You know, it was the dead ball era and you're talking about Otani, you know, you're talking about a guy that, you know, 31 home runs of the All-Star break, I mean, probably even more than that once you get past this week. I mean, you're talking about a guy that's projected to hit about 50 home runs this year if he plays the entire season. So so Otani's just been unbelievable. And uh, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about where baseball's headed as, uh, you know, the All-Star games next week. That's about a time when you start thinking about the state of the game and Everybody's thinking about the the sick, sticky substances. You know, everybody's talking about everything that's wrong with baseball. When in reality, I think that baseball, with all its problems, stories like Otani have been really good for the game. You know, Fernando Tatis Jr. He really lit it up last night and really had a good July Fourth weekend. You know, Fernando Tatis Jr. Somebody that's good for the game. Somebody that's drawing attention, drawing a younger audience to baseball. You know, you got some good storylines in terms of the pennant race coming up. You know, you got teams like the Houston Astros, despite the sign stealing scheme. I mean, Houston's got a pretty good record right now. Is they're in first place in the AL West? And it's interesting how you know, all the old people in baseball were talking about how poor out uh, Tony Larusa is no match for today's game. Look at the White Sox; they're forty-nine and thirty-five. You know, the couple time to- the couple mistakes that Tony Larusa made. You know, when Tony Larusa was uh, you know, getting on a, a hitter for ignoring a 3-0 sign and hitting a home run in, a, in the end of a blowout, and everybody getting upset about it. And, oh man, Larusa, uh, uh, go away! I mean, Tony Larusa has done a great job. I mean, nobody wants to talk about it because it doesn't fit the narrative. Everybody wants the narrative of, oh, look at this old tired guy; he doesn't belong in this in, in the modern day baseball game. Yet the Hall of Fame baseball guy has got the White Sox in first place you on know, the AL East. I mean, Boston's had a great year, 54 and 32 as of July 6th. I mean, they've been unbelievable. I think if you look at the National League, you know, what about Jacob DeGrom? A guy that gave up 3 runs against the Braves in the first inning last week and yet didn't yet didn't allow anything after that. Jacob DeGrom right now on July 6th has an ERA of 0.95. He's doing things that are are Bob Gibson 1968 like. It's 85 innings pitched. Jacob Degrom has allowed 35 hits as a starting pitcher. It's unbelievable. I mean, Jacob deGrom's having a year for the ages. I mean, I haven't seen Jacob I haven't seen a pitcher do what Jacob Degrom's doing. Maybe since Greg Maddox in the 1990s, dominating year in and year out. You know, he had that four-year run. Did Maddox, where he won fourth straight Cy Youngs, 1994, 93, 94, 95, and Greg Maddox is just mowing everybody down. Degrom's pretty much doing that same thing. You know, you're talking about an era that's good for offense, a lot of power. Degrom, you know, everybody's talking about the home runs. Degrom's only allowed four home runs in 85 innings. I mean, what he's doing has been amazing, and the Mets are in first place, and a big part of it is a guy like Jacob Degrom dominating every five days. You know, you got great storylines in the National League West. I mean, who saw the Giants coming? 53 and 31, doing it with guys like Kevin Gosman. You know, Kevin Gosman's 8-3 and with a 1.74 ERA. Gosman was just an average starter. Anthony Scafani, he's 9-3. and Who's Anthony Scafani? Exactly. He's been dominating this year. You know, Alex Wood, you know, an older Johnny Cueto continues to get the job done for the Giants. And so, if you're talking about maybe the three best teams in the National League, they're all sitting in the West. Giants, Dodgers, Padres... I mean, Trevor Bauer—that's certainly a black eye for baseball. The Trevor Bauer situation I, I, I almost doubt whether Trevor Bauer is going to pitch again this season. That's the thing. Baseball's had its issues. I mean, the sticky—the sticky substance thing has been a joke. I mean, how it's been administered in the middle of a season—you know—the optics certainly don't look good with a pitcher exiting the mound and all of a sudden getting checked. You know, the optics certainly aren't good. But you know, they're certainly with all its negative stuff you know i've been i watched a lot of baseball this past weekend i mean there's a lot that's wrong with the game i mean they still haven't figured out how to solve pace of play i mean pace of play is still a big issue in the sport of baseball however there's still a lot of good stuff happening in the game as well. And come midseason. I'm certainly excited about that all-star game. I want to see Otani strike out the side one half of an inning and then hit a home run in the other <laughs> in the neck in the other half of the inning. You know, he's doing some amazing things, I man. It's not like Bo Jackson playing dude two different sports. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's a designated hitter, probably could play the field and play it well in the outfield, could Otani you're also talking about a guy, a guy that's dominating on the mound, and he's doing things that not even Babe Ruth was really doing. Everybody talks about the comparison to Babe Ruth, but Ruth only did both for two years, and even then he was kind of not as much of a pitcher making 40 starts a year plus playing in the outfield. I mean, what Otani's doing is something I'm not even sure Babe Ruth uh, did in the late 1910s uh, with the Boston Red Sox before getting sold to the Yankees where he became exclusively an outfielder. When we come back, we'll talk some college football, and we'll also talk about that name-image likeness thing. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, but i got a few initial thoughts. Here's the Tyson Show. Rolls along here on July 6th right here on Mixler. And, uh, you know, we're also on uh, – usually I try to figure out what avenue we're on. We're on Mixler. We're on SoundCloud. We're on all those good stuff right here on the Tyson Show. Game 1 is tonight. I'm Tyson Whiting with your 2020 sports update. The Phoenix Suns host Game 1 of the 2021 NBA Finals against the Milwaukee Bucks tonight at 7 o'clock Mountain Time. Phoenix is favored by 5.5 for Game 1. The Suns are also favored to win the series, and a big reason for that is the injury to two-time NBA MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is doubtful for Game 1 and his availability for the rest of the series is also in question. The Greek Freak left Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals with an injury. These teams did meet twice in the regular season with Phoenix winning on February 10th, 125 to 124. And that game Giannis had 47 points for the Bucks, and Devin Booker led Phoenix with 30. The Suns also won on April 19th in overtime, 128 to 127. So both of the games were decided by one point, and both of them were Phoenix victories. The finals is anything like the two regular season meetings? This is going to certainly be a classic series. Game one is on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. In hockey, the Montreal Canadiens saved their season with a 3-2 overtime win over the Tampa Bay Lightning in Game Four of the Stanley Cup Finals. Josh Anderson scored two goals, including the game winner 3:57 into the extra session, as the Canadiens win their first Finals game since 1993. They also happened to be the last time the Phoenix Suns were in the NBA Finals, so 1993 is certainly a big theme there. Tampa Bay still leads the series three games to one with Game 5 taking place on Wednesday night in Tampa. Today is the made-for-TV golf event on TNT with Aaron Rodgers and Bryson DeChambeau taking on Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady in Big Sky, Montana. At your 2020 sports update. I'm Tyson Whiting, and you can follow me on Twitter at Tyson on Sports, I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Welcome back to the Tyson Show. We'll be here until 11 a.m. We're here a couple times a week. Next Tyson Show will be on July 9th. That'll be Friday, previewing the weekend and probably reviewing the NHL Stanley Cup Finals as I imagine the Tampa Bay Lightning are going to come back and win Game 5 on home ice. As Montreal ended up winning last night to continue with the season, Josh Anderson scored the overtime game winner 357. Into overtime, a lot of fun stuff this week, and I'm certainly looking forward to the NBA Finals. And this is kind of an interesting stat. The Bucks and the Suns Finals here in 2021 is the first NBA Finals to feature zero players with a championship since 1977. That was a series that featured the Trailblazers and the Philadelphia 76ers. The only player on either team with finals experience is Jay Crowder, who last season played with the Miami Heat Crowder a key role player for the Phoenix Suns. And I'm curious to kind of see which role player. And you think about Jay Crowder and P.J. Tucker, they're pretty similar players. And P.J. Tucker, you know, despite the fact that statistically he doesn't show much, P.J. Tucker certainly made an impact on that Milwaukee Bucks team, certainly brought a physical presence. Certainly everybody needs a Jay Crowder or a P.J. Tucker, a guy like that, somebody who maybe lacks size. I mean, for the Jazz, probably the best equivalent is Royce O'Neal. You know, somebody that's maybe undersized, probably's got that chip on his shoulder because he's undersized and because he got overlooked. You know, guys like that who simply who aren't making a ton of money, you know, don't necessarily need to score a bunch of points, but you know, you got them on a team with, you know, guys like Devin Booker who will score a lot of points and they just step in and play a role and play it well. I mean, every team's going to need a Jay Crowder and a PJ Tucker. And I'm curious as to see, you now PJ Tucker, former Phoenix son. You know which of those role players is going to come up big. You know, for Milwaukee, I think especially if Giannis doesn't play in this series, in particular, if he doesn't play early in this series. I mean, who knows? He probably will give it a go here later on in the series, even though he's doubtful for Game One. I'm looking at a couple of role players in particular, and I'm looking at the low post because you look at DeAndre Ayton. You know, probably Phoenix's third best player behind Devin Booker and Chris Paul. I mean, Aiton had that amazing alley-oop to win game two. I think they're calling it the valley-oop. You know, Aiton scored 16 points and about 12 rebounds a game. So I think the big matchup there is can Brooke Lopez slow him down? I mean, Lopez is getting up there in age, but a guy that can move around a little bit, but doesn't quite move around to the the extent that DeAndre Aiton moves. I mean, DeAndre Aiton kind of reminded me coming into the draft in 2018 of a younger David Robinson, just that type of athlete with size who can elevate and and get those alley-oops and and somebody who can kind of dominate in the paint. you know, I, I look at DeAndre Ayton being kind of that, that prototype, seven-foot David Robinson type. Can Brooke Lopez slow him down? And I'm also looking at Bobby Portis, a guy that is going to have to play big minutes here down the stretch. I mean, Portis ended up playing 32 minutes in that game six against Atlanta, scoring 12 points. He's going to have to come up big. And which team's bench can come up and give good minutes? I mean, I'm looking at Milwaukee, Pat Connaughton, Jeff Teague, Brent Forbes, those guys are going to have to come up with something. You know, those guys combined for 29 points in Game Six. Those guys are probably going to have to combine for about 20 to 25 points in this series if Milwaukee is going to come away with the victory, with a series win. I'm looking at Phoenix's bench. You know, we talk about the stars a lot, and Devin Booker and Chris Paul. I'm thinking about Cameron Payne, a guy who in the postseasons averaged 10 points a game. You know, Mikhail Bridges. He's going to be starting at the three at the three spot. He's going to have a big defensive assignment is is Bridges. But I'm looking at Cam Johnson, averaging 8 points in the playoffs. You know, can Dario Sarrich give good minutes and go up against maybe a Bobby Portis down low, you know? So, which team's bench can end up uh, coming through, but as we mentioned earlier, the backcourt matchup is probably going to define this series. Chris Paul, Devin Booker for the Suns side against Drew Holiday, one of the premier, maybe the premier defensive guard in the league and Chris Middleton. You know, Middleton averaging 23 points a game in this playoff. Can Drew Holiday find a way to slow down? And I'm curious to see who Holiday is going to end up guarding. Is he going to take the assignment of Devin Booker, or is Drew Holiday going to get the assignment of slowing down Chris Paul? I imagine to start the series we'll see Holiday on Chris Paul, but it'd be curious You know, mid-game. Do you end up seeing Holiday on Devin Booker, and maybe you take a little bit of Holiday's offense away, knowing that he's got that tough defensive assignment? Because I'm not entirely sure. You know, as good offensively as Chris Middleton is, you know Middleton averages about a still and a half a game. Can Chris Middleton slow down Devin Booker just enough? I mean, Booker's going to get his points, but he, can he slow him down just enough to make an impact in this series? But uh, it's going to be fascinating. We mentioned earlier that uh, both meetings – were decided by one point in the regular season. So you're talking about, uh, and obviously Milwaukee had Giannis in both of those meetings, and Giannis had 80 points in two games against Phoenix this year. If he doesn't play, I think it's a different story, and Phoenix ends up winning in six games. I picked up a Phil Still magazine over the <laughs> over the weekend. Uh, Phil Still magazine, uh, which I get every year. I ended up paying quite a bit more than I wanted to this year. The magazine was 20 bucks this year. But it certainly was worth it. You know, here in the Salt Lake Valley, I think a lot about Utah and BYU in particular. And for Utah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them. There are three big games for them this season in conference. You know, obviously that game against BYU is going to get a lot of local attention. And, uh, you know, Utah has beaten BYU every year since 2009. So who knows if that's going to change. I'm looking at three big games, though, for Utah. It's going to define their season. I'm looking at that matchup at USC, and that's right, Utah is at USC this year, and the Utes have had no success in Southern California against the Trojans. I mean, USC has dominated their home field against Utah. Can can the Utes find a way to win that game? Because even though it's been close, it seems like every time the Utes have been there, USC has come out on the the upper hand. So can the Utes win at USC? That's going to be a big matchup early in the season, October 9th, in the L.A. Coliseum. The other two games I'm looking forward to from the Utes that maybe define their season, I'm thinking at Stanford on November 5th. Stanford's been a pretty good team. And I'm also looking at that game, November 20th, against the Oregon Ducks. That's going to be a huge game. I think that game's at Rice-Eccles Stadium, and it is on November 20th. Those three games, I think more than any other, are going to define the Utes' season this year. And they returned a lot of starters from last year. Unfortunately, they have the tragedy with Ty Jordan in the offseason, but they get a new quarterback in Charlie Brewer, who I think is a big upgrade from what they had in previous years. I think they got enough good receivers. they got the talented Ty Dendus back, got a lot of offensive line returning. And obviously, as as the, we get closer to the season, we'll get into a few more specifics uh, with Utes football. I think they got a pretty good defense. I mean, Devin Lloyd, I think uh, Phil Still has got him in first-team All-American at the linebacker spot so you're talking about a really good core of linebackers and it was good for the defensive unit I mean going into 2020 that was a very underdeveloped secondary you know a secondary that uh, did not play a whole lot of games and uh, you know you're talking about uh, getting that experience last year which I think was invaluable you know, Devin Lloyd, the first-team All-American. But they also have some other great players defensively as well, in particular in that front seven. So I think Utes are going to be pretty tough this year. Do, they, do I have one in the South? I mean, we'll talk about that in a future show. But uh, those three matchups I mentioned are probably going to define whether Utah is a threat for the college football playoff, whether maybe they're a threat to at least win the conference. Got to find a way to win at USC, which they haven't been able to do. Uh, you know, Stanford and Oregon in November, those are going to be big games. And I also look at that October 30th game against UCLA because as I was looking at UCLA, if Chip Kelly is going to get it done over in Pasadena, it's going to have to be this season with all the returning starters he's got. If Chip Kelly is going to have any success at UCLA, he's going to have to find a way this year to get UCLA to a bowl game and find a way to get the Trojans back on track. And speaking of UCLA and the unfortunate Story we heard over the weekend is that Terry Donahue passed away at the age of 77. He's UCLA's all time winningest coach. And Terry Donahue, I remember maybe as much for him as a broadcaster because he was CBS's lead football analyst for a few years, you know, 1996, 97, 98. I think he actually started his broadcasting career with that national championship game, Nebraska and Florida, in the Fiesta Bowl there in January of 96. And Terry Donahue was a really good broadcaster and really an outstanding coach, really an underrated coach in college football history. I mean, he didn't quite have that personality, that, that overly outgoing personality, as you see with other college football coaches. But Terry Donahue and UCLA just seemed like year in and year out. 1980s, you know, especially those teams that had Troy Aikman back in the late 1980s, It just seemed like Terry Donahue's last season was in 1995 with UCLA, just year in and year out, produced really good team after really good team. And uh, you really look at the era was just defined by a bunch of winning seasons in the Terry Donahue era, and obviously that's a spot that UCLA is trying to get back to. I mean, I think that UCLA is now appreciating what Jim Mora did a little bit more now, realizing that the guy that followed him Uh, has had no success at all i mean i'm really surprised that it's taken this long for chip kelly to to get it going at ucla but if he's going to get it done it's going to be this year and so it'll be a lot of fun talking college football here on the tyson show two or three times a week and uh, it'll be a lot of fun talking about the nfl as well as we're about a month away from training camp and preseason games if you want to get a little bit of football action though on the golf course Obviously, the match with Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady taking on Aaron Rodgers and Bryson and DeChambeau. I'm bet there's, i pretty sure there's a lot of interesting prop bets that go along with this thing. I think if you're looking for a storyline, though, I'm not entirely sure for the, with this golf event that you're going to get any in terms of any hints of whether Aaron Rodgers is going to show up in Green Bay Packers camp or not. I mean, you're looking at Aaron Rodgers and the situation there in Green Bay. I think the Packers are just counting on Aaron Rodgers... Giving it up and showing up one day, and you know, just saying, you know, coming with a chip on his shoulder and pretty much telling everybody, "Hey, I'm here. (laughs) I'm ready to play." I think the Packers are hoping that Aaron Rodgers will show up. Maybe he won't show up very happy, but he'll show up ready to to you know regain his MVP status. I mean, he's the MVP last year. I think the Packers think that oh, we got an angry, uh, we got an angry. Chip on his shoulder type of guy. I think they want to get the most out of Aaron Rodgers. And uh, I think if you're Aaron Rodgers, what you got to do is just not show up. Uh, you know, the, the Packers pretty much are, are calling Aaron Rodgers bluff. Or, you know, they, I think the Packers are just going to assume that Aaron Rodgers at some point is just going to show up. And if you're Aaron Rodgers, the best thing to do is to just not show up. Just don't show up. Fall camp will roll around and the Packers will have to get the message. Oh, Aaron Rodgers is not coming. We're going to have to go with Jordan Love. That's right, that Jordan Love that at Utah State, you know, was pretty good in 2017. The 2018 Jordan Love is good, I guess. 2019 though, Jordan Love was not good. I mean, I I don't know what Utah I don't know what the Packers are thinking and taking Jordan Love with a first round pick. He could end up being a decent NFL quarterback because he's got a lot of talent. Jordan Love though is not good. 2019 Utah State Jordan Love, not good at all. Packers made a big mistake there. And not only did you draft a quarterback in the first round when you had other needs, but your future Hall of Fame quarterback obviously doesn't see it as a vote of confidence or a vote of competition or a vote of, hey, bring him in. Just just like uh, you brought Aaron Rodgers in to replace Brett Favre. You know, did that make Brett Favre happy? No. You got a Hall of Fame quarterback like that, you surround him with weapons. You don't draft his replacement, especially a guy that might not necessarily be that talented. You know, the guy that's got a lot of, a lot of ability, got a lot of potential. Did you see Jordan Love in twenty nineteen though? He was terrible. I I don't understand the decision. Uh, not one to draft Jordan Love, and now you've upset Aaron Rodgers, I think that this is a relationship that uh, the end is gonna be near and the end is gonna have to be Aaron Rodgers getting traded somewhere. Yeah, I think the 49ers are kind of holding out hope that they can even go there. I think the Denver Broncos are the one team that are pretty much set for, hey, we're going to get Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it's not like the Denver Broncos are settled at the quarterback position right now. I think the Denver Broncos are just waiting for the call from the Green Bay Packers that says, Aaron Rodgers is available. We want your best offer. Because I think at the end of the day, if Aaron Rodgers is going to get traded, it's going to be to the Denver Broncos. And uh, are we going to – Get any sort of indication, any sort of hint during the match? I don't think so. I think it's just going to be all golf here today, but it'll be interesting to see. And I think it's going to be a must-see TV, if nothing else, than to see Tom Brady and maybe the trash-talking going on. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is certainly a very polarizing player. The only difference, the only thing that would have made this better, I mean, I like Phil Mickelson. He ended up winning six majors. He ended up winning the PGA Championship, miraculously, at over the age of 50. Yeah, you know, the oldest major winner, I would have liked Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka, Tom Brady against Aaron Rodgers and Bryson DeChambeau. The Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau feud, I mean, the thing is, you know, would that turn into those guys fighting on the 12th hole? You know, not that different from Happy Gilmore and Bob Barker. I mean, that's what I would want to see. I would want to see Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau going at it just off the green at 12. You know, let's see a fist fight. I don't know. It's be something interesting to see because Bryson DeChambeau seems like that type of golfer that can easily get under the skin of other golfers. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in Bryson DeChambeau's golf career, he just ends up in a full-out fistfight with his playing partner. I don't know. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau is looking for a caddy. I saw that over the weekend. Bryson DeChambeau fired his caddy, so he's looking for a new caddy. I mean, he could end up you know, Happy Gilmore style, just find somebody in the parking lot and be like, you want to be my caddy? You know, hold my bag. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with the the match. I don't think we're going to get any interesting storyline either way, either from Brady or from Aaron Rodgers. I do think we'll get some interesting trash talk from those four during the match. That's going to be on TNT later today. And we were mentioning a little bit about college football. I think the interesting thing is that name-image likeness thing. And I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, as we only got a few more minutes here on the Tyson Show. The first edition, as uh, we'll be back on on Friday, here in the same time, same channel, about 10 a.m. here on Mixler. And we'll also post these shows on on SoundCloud as well. But I'm thinking about that name-image likeness thing, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of it yet. I do know that you know when you think about college football and you kind of think about the recruiting and and cheating i I kind of wonder you know all the gray areas that come into place you know can uh and really i kind of think about recruiting maybe the first thing when it comes to this name image likeness thing in particular i think about a conference like the sec with as competitive as it is and with as much money as can be had especially in those markets where you don't really have pro teams and i think that's part of what makes the SEC such an interesting landscape. You got Tuscaloosa, Alabama, you got Baton Rouge, you got Gainesville, Athens, Georgia. You got all these places that you know are kind of based, you know kind of built. It seems like the sports fabric of those places are there are their college teams, are there SEC teams. You know, Oxford, Mississippi, Starkville, you know, who ended up winning the national championship for the first time uh, on the baseball diamond. You know, with the Mississippi State beating Vanderbilt in the championship series. You know, so you get a big five-star recruit, he's going to make more money there. He's going to get more endorsement deals there than he is in maybe a pro town. You know, you go to Dallas and SMU, you know, you're going to have to be overshadowed by the Cowboys and the Dallas Stars and the Dallas Mavericks. You know, you go to the Bay Area. You know, is anybody interested business-wise in dealing with Stanford and Cal athletes? No, they, they're in, you know, if, if anybody's going to get endorsement money, it's going to be 49ers players, you know, San Francisco Giants, Golden State Warriors players. So geographically, you know, players are going to make more money in those college towns So I'm starting to wonder, as I'm losing my voice a little bit here at the end of the show, and we'll talk more about it in some upcoming episodes, but I'm starting to wonder about, you know, what kind of an impact is it actually going to have? You know, the rules, the the NCAA can put whatever rules and guidelines in place. The states can put whatever rules and guidelines in place. Bottom line is, I'm still trying to figure it out, and it's going to be one of those where I kind of wonder, you know... There's going to be a lot of loopholes in place. You kind of wonder if it's going to make more of an impact on recruiting. And can a university promise players, you know, going into a draft, you know, going in, you know, a player, let's say he's interested in Ohio State, Michigan. He's got a couple SEC schools he's interested in. You know, as you look at that SEC school and figure, you know, does an SEC school use that as part of the pitch? Oh, we got a car dealership. we got this other – Person lined up you know we got a booster that that runs a business here you go over here to to a grocery store place you know we got a you got a former we got an alum over there that's invested a lot of money in us you know do they go to these recruits and say you sign with us we got four different boosters that are running these businesses we can guarantee a fifty thousand dollars before you even sign your name on the dotted line you know sign your letter of intent you know, do they say, "Hey, we can line you up with no less than fifty thousand dollars"? You know, has that become part of the recruiting pitch? And do you get some of these schools have, yeah, have donors that really know how to push the envelope. You know, you kind of look at what what went wrong with S with SMU in the nineteen eighties. You know, pretty much buying players. Is that going to be the way it is? You know, or is it going to be something where? the starting quarterback's going to get some money from endorsement deals you know your starting running back maybe gets a little bit of something but for the most part you know it's just going to be a non-factor I think we'll talk about more in some upcoming episodes as uh, we've run out of time here on this Tuesday looking forward to the NBA finals looking forward to the Major League Baseball All-Star game coming up next week we'll talk some sports we'll talk about the finals and the All-Star game coming up and the state of Major League Baseball and a lot of good stuff maybe put a bow on the hockey season as well as we're here in the utah grizzlies offices and we're here today and we'll be here on friday as well talking all things in the world of sports and we'll be back on friday 10 a.m you can hear it on mixler live and we'll also be on soundcloud as well after the show i'm tyson whiting it is what it is we'll talk to you friday right here on the tyson show